Ever wondered what superpower Curtis has always wanted? All right, maybe not. But have you ever wondered what human power God always wanted and then achieved? From God's example, more than any other, we learned that weakness becomes strength and limitation can be the means to greatness. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. This week, I interview Curtis Childs about how he came to devote his life to sharing Swedenborg's message and why that's so important to him. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose gives us insight into what it means to bless the Lord. Then we travel to 1766 and congratulate Swedenborg on a safe and speedy return to Stockholm with his long-awaited published work on the Book of Revelation this week in history. All right. Welcome, Curtis. Hey, it's good to be here. Yes, here we are for another episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Oh, yeah. And for this one, I thought something we've never really done. You know, here I have you here just about every week. And we talk about one topic or another, but I've never just interviewed you. I realize (sighs) you go off and do these interviews for other people, but what about... Our diehard, you know, fans who are listening to our podcast, I should be interviewing you, or it's about time. Don't you think? Oh, all right. Let's, let's see. I'll start to imagine uh, an interesting life. There you go. Right. And yeah, just do come up with all the, all the imaginary things that you do for yeah. all the other interviews. Oh, sure. <laughs> what, what would the ideal Curtis do? Right. Yeah. No, but really, I think uh, I have some questions prepared, and... I'm excited to hear your reflections on these things because I do think I think it's interesting how you came to be doing the work that you're doing for the Swedenborg Foundation. And I thought people might be interested in learning a little bit more about it. So so I, I'm I maybe I know some more about you than other people listening, but I'm gonna ask you as if I don't know sure. that you grew up in a Swedenborgian religious community, correct? That's right. I did. Uh, my Both of my parents were members of a Swedenborgian church. Uh, we even, uh, at one point in my childhood, moved into like a subdivision that had been bought by the church. And, you know, they were trying to encourage, you know, people in the church to move there and like they'd help them get a house or something. So I was living like in a neighborhood where most of the other people were in that church. I mean, there was other, you know, there was neighborhoods that bordered us that were just regular neighborhoods. But so I had quite a lot of immersion in Swedenborgian culture. I mean, my friends, uh, you know, right. I, I went to some school, some I, I sort of split my time. Like sometimes I was in Swedenborgian schools, sometimes I was not. But definitely uh, for a good chunk there in the beginning, you know, I, that was my world. Um, so I was in that, but also like even within that world, I was into the Swedenborg ideas. Like I, not all my friends were, not everybody in the, that went to the church took it that seriously, but I did. I, I, in not like, it wasn't all consuming right from the beginning, but I certainly was just prone to thinking, thinking about like the big life questions and t- taking seriously what, um, the implications of what was being said. So I was just... It wasn't a hard sell for me to be interested in it. It just—I think it just was the nature of my personality. Are there any particular memories that you have 
about that sort of early interest in those bigger questions. Yeah. I want to credit my parents a lot for having a love for the ideas, but not in a way mm -hmm. that to me felt smothering or off-putting. I know a lot of people can come out of very religious backgrounds and, and really um, be trying to shed themselves of everything associated. So I, I think my parents' stance, which was involved, but it wasn't overbearing, uh, I think that helped. I had some sense about it. And also, like, you know, I... As I said, I, I had this early tragedy in my life where uh, my sister died, and I think that that forced me to think about life after death and those kinds of things. It wasn't, it, it, I had to form some kind of opinion around it. So I think that pushed me into gravitating toward that even, even more. Yeah, so would you have predicted or had you ever imagined devoting your life to sharing Swedenborg's works uh, or or if not, was there a time when you sort of first woke up to that possibility of of really the power of Swedenborg's ideas in your life and that it was like, oh, I want to do this. I want to, this is the cause I want to be supporting in the world. Yeah. It's funny because there's probably so many little moments and instances I've forgotten in my own mm -hmm. life that are relate to that because I... I my, my my short answer would be until uh, I was pretty deep into college. No, I don't think so. But then yep. again, I had had all, a, a number of moments where I was really feeling like this is something I really do want to be involved with. As far as it mm -hmm. being a potential career path, I don't think so. I, I had yeah. a love of some other things. And I also, um, what sort of my the main way that I engage with doing the Swedenborg thing now, which is talking about it, I wasn't always a really comfortable orator. So that that mm -hmm. kind of emerged later on as well. So I, I don't think I, I pictured that. Like I, I wanted to do biology, but I, de I definitely had a love of it. It was becoming just more and more... Um, I couldn't ignore it. I couldn't ignore its importance and my my interest in getting people aware of it. Because I guess I would say like, oh, I hadn't thought of it as a job until I was almost graduated, and and uh, I got this offer from um, from New Church Live, which was a, a Swedenborgian sort of church futureish startup internet thing, and mm -hmm. I, so I would say, oh, I hadn't thought about working for a church until then, but you know, look back a few years before that. And I had at, at the university where I was going, I had been giving out Swedenborg books to people. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a like, symptom. Curtis. <laughs> I guess you could say the red flags were there, right? Yes. I had, the, there was um, a couple of times there was a, a dude who was, I, I had a, a show at the FM radio station at our university, which is, it was pretty small. Like it, it just didn't reach very far. I mean, the university was like 20,000 students, so like a mid-sized university, but the, the radio station in particular had a very limited reach. It wasn't hard or competitive to get a show on there, but I got one. And mm -hmm. uh, there's another guy who had a show. Let's see. Oh, I think he had a show there. Was he in a class? It's all becoming a, a haze, but he was into philosophy. He was very into philosophy. And I remember giving him divine love and wisdom. And I was like, this is this is my favorite philosopher. And I was like, he's going to, this is so going to captivate his mind. He's going to love it. 
And later I was like, hey, did you read it? He's like, yeah, I didn't really agree with everything in it. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> it didn't and, change his life. Shoot. And then I had another, uh, there was another professor who we were doing, it was some kind of world literature course. And he, one of the books that we read, it was like great pieces of literature or something, I forget. But one of them was the, the what was called the David story, but it was David out of the Bible, but, but mm-hmm. like separated out as, and looking at it as literature. And so he was just, re- I just th- thought he was really bright and he was, t- we, we, we read that alongside all these other ones, like I'm sure, oh gosh, man, probably the Iliad or the Odyssey or one of those, those kinds of books. Yeah. So we read the David story and I remember thinking, oh, this guy would just light up if he, if he found, because he was, if he found Swedenborg's explanation of this biblical text because he was kind of dancing around the right. idea of there being a meaning in there and I was like this is going to be perfect so I got one of those NCE paperbacks and and I gave it to him and he's like, and I remember he was like well we, no, we don't need to give any gifts or anything I was like no just take it um, so he probably <laughs> never read it but in my mind I was oh, like man. his mind he is just waiting to become this powerful Swedenborg and so you know I think it was probably something that, that was going to have to happen and I think that as Swedenborg, especially when I started to use Swedenborg's concepts as a way to cope with my own uh, mental health issues that were coming up and my stresses in life, as soon as it became this saving thing for me, Mm -hmm. I think that it just became more and more like that's what I was, that's what I was passionate about was that. So you could probably connect the dots, but it certainly was a surprise. I wasn't in in high school or middle school and thinking, oh, yeah, when I grow up and talk about Swedenborg stuff. Oh, that's really that's fun to hear that sequence of events and how it's there, but then you don't notice it till you notice it. You know, in terms of you, you have this passion for it, you want to share the ideas, and then it's just a matter of you know, that then sort of providence leading you into the work of it for real. And, yeah. And it's like, you know. it, it, and I, like everybody does, like I had a, a drive. I, I want things to be better. I want things to be better than they are. I think everybody's got that. You're looking for how can I change the world in a positive way? And I think that that, that push was trying to manifest itself in different ways. And I think when I was trying to like I, I really was getting, I was getting my degree in biology, and I loved nature, and I loved animals, and I wanted, to, I wanted to, to study them or talk to people about them or something, and I wanted to do that because of the joy that it brought me, because of the the healing and uh, the medicine that it was to me, and so yeah, I, I felt like oh, that's one of the most potently cool things, and I want to spread that. So it might have been that same kind of passion mm-hmm. is you know, now finding actually. Oh no! Wait, this because even now I think I would I would rather be devoting my life to the the Swedenborg ideology than to biology conservation. Even though I love biology and I love nature, but uh, like, why is nature at risk in the first place? It's because people people's minds aren't right. That that you gotta solve the problem of people being self centered and materialistic. And, and uncaring about their impact on others, or you're never going to get to the root, you're never going to get people to stop doing stuff that's wrecking nature, you know? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, going to the core. Here's another question is, yeah. what is a common myth 
or idea about Swedenborg out there that you wish you could clear up for the world about him or his works? I don't like it when Swedenborg comes off as more limited than he really is. When people will see, you know, there's a lot of people that were in the church background that I grew up in who now have a really negative view of Swedenborg because mm-hmm. they associate it with uh, religion and the um, the political cultural views of the church and bad experiences they have. Or they, I remember just talking to somebody recently who had been reading stuff that Swedenborg wrote about marriage and getting really mm-hmm. upset about it. And I know that people can come across areas and passages where he seems to be pretty simplistic and punitive and fundamentalist. And they think that's what he is. And I say, no, even if it seems like, okay, fine, it seems like it there, but that's not true. That's not the truth that he's telling you about. So I, even, even famous people was somebody like, gosh, Thoreau or Emerson, I don't know the difference. But one of these famous uh, artistic influencers that was into Swedenborg, but then there's some quote of his that like, oh, Swedenborg doesn't quite get it because he thinks everything has to happen within the confines of a church. Oh, yeah. And and I remember thinking, I was realizing, oh, that famous person, whichever one it was, doesn't really know Swedenborg. Like skim the surface, but doesn't understand what the church is that the church is this state of heart and mind that's inside of you. And Mm -hmm. I feel like, hey, man, that's, you can't, no, 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 come back. Because what, when I feel most joyful around Swedenborg's message is when it feels as expansive and organic and true as nature or as any kind of love that people feel for each other. That no, this is, this is very much a companion peace to everything that is obviously noble and right about life. And I get it that there's some stuff of his that feels very constrictive and stuff that seems very much like you could write it off the way you write off other religious stuff. But I wish that I could tell people that I I don't, that's, that's not what I'm into. I'm into this because of this fluid, uh, this like the fluid's not the right word, but this three-dimensional realistic truth, you know? Yes. Like Swedenborg says in a, and I think it was even just last week's episode, a living truth. That's what he's sort of trying to describe is that it's a living truth. Yes. And that's got to be more than any of those little pitfalls that people fall into when they're reading and, you know, run into, get tripped on one of the roots, you know, or something. <laughs> yeah. A living, that's great. A, a living truth. That is just right. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's great. Well, and that keeps you in business, right? It gives you that gives you your mission to keep clarifying that and and bringing people that access so they aren't just dismissing Swedenborg's works and then missing out on that huge expansive uh, insight and vision that you get when you spend that time with it. Right. Uh, all right, one last question. Cool. If if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Flying. Wait. Okay. I, yeah. Oh. I when I imagine, I mean, there's been times when 
recently when I was feeling really challenged by the modern, the struggles of the modern life, which is, and, and particularly even the struggles of the work that you and I are in, which is this just complicated, trying to solve a really complicated problem where mm-hmm. you're trying to figure out figure out Swedenborg's theology, figure out how to express it, figure out how to get people interested in it, figure out the technology and the strategy and everything and and the the you know navigating the personalities involved in everything. And I was thinking and 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 the, the constant work of trying to <laughs> convince people of stuff. Convince people of stuff. <laughs> Or, or argue things ish, right? Or explain things in a way that you're dependent on a reaction inside them. So you can only put something out and hope it does mm-hmm. it. And I remember just thinking, I wish I just had real regular superpowers. Or I could just fly or something. And for some reason to me, this was like before I was going to sleep, I was thinking it. And it just seemed yes. like the antidote to complex problem, problem solving is just <laughs> zooming along. And, and suddenly you don't have to like try to figure out how to get the algorithm to like your videos. It's just, whoa, he's flying. That guy's flying That's over great. there. <laughs> and I do sometimes, I do sometimes imagine, okay, if I was flying, yeah. And then, but I, I, and I, maybe I would have like a helmet. So how fast could I go? Like 45 miles an hour. Um, so I, yes, I think right? I think like that it would be so fun. The only one that would, I mean, I mean, if, if we're not talking about superpowers like world, like make everybody have enough to eat, you know, all the stuff that you'd want to do for. Like I'm just talking about regular superpowers. Mm-hmm. The only other one would be uh, be able to breathe underwater, because oh nice, I just yes. I just love love underwater. I love snorkeling. Mm. It's like one of my top two activities, probably. Uh, the, the other one being roller coasters, probably. So that would be the flying aspect. But if you could just, you I, I just imagine to be able to just sit there and hang out underwater. I haven't ever scuba dived. It seems like a lot to to do. But if I could just, just um, hand, and I guess like handle underwater pressure and everything. Right. That right. would be cool, but I mean, come on. So if it's either one of those, the, the underwater one would be good, but probably you wouldn't be able to use it as often. Uh, flying is probably what you'd have to say. Well, there you go. It's like flying high or going deep. And doesn't Swedenborg say, you know, no, high, going higher in heaven is also going deeper. Is going deeper. Okay. So I just want the one superpower. Things. I just want to be able to go higher, go. which is also yeah. deeper. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great. Well, gosh, thanks, Curtis, for going through this interview and giving us your thoughts and opening your mind and memories to us. Sure, it was fun. Uh, Yeah, and I want to make a short announcement for everybody that we are coming to the close of another season of the podcast, which really, we don't release them seasonally, but it's in terms of how we produce and plan and research for the show. And so we're going to be actually taking a little bit of a longer uh, break from posting new episodes, basically just the rest of September, to give us some time to prep for some in-depth episodes that I'm very excited about. And so we'll be doing that work, preparing to launch new episodes come October. And so I'm looking forward to that, but we have more to look forward to right now. So 
Curtis, you know, I think you've really earned it. Would you join me to go meet up with Jonathan and hear what gems he's found in his work of the NCE? Whoa, are you sure? I mean, yeah, I I, I don't know if I'm, uh, I might be underdressed for this, but this is, yeah, <laughs> right. this is a great day. Jonathan's we, very forgiving. We, we get, he is, he has a kind heart underneath it all. Um, <laughs> I love, dude, what a good day. I, the like those awesomely exciting podcast episodes coming up and i love the idea of recharging and getting in there and i get to go see jonathan like let's do it yes i say yes all right here we go knock knock hey jonathan hey there oh look who's here hey curtis how you uh. doing he knows my name. Uh, very, very glad to be here. You look good, man. Oh, thank you. What, this old thing? Thank you. Yes, I told him to dress nicely. So, because <laughs> he's coming with us. We're both here this week to hear what news from the New Century Edition or what insights or things you've come across, you've stumbled upon in the work of your editing, which, as far as I know, you're still uh, you're editing Secrets of Heaven, Volume 3. Am I right? Actually, I've succeeded in moving on to volume four, which is Whoa. very exciting. Congrats. So I have some Applause quotes that... if it wouldn't blow out my speakers. <laughs> volume three is going through the pipeline of production right now, which is terribly exciting. And I've moved on I'm about halfway through volume four and uh, finding some more gems. And mm-hmm. this time, all three of them have to do with a rather um, arcane topic uh god's love hmm. you know just a, a niche, sort of obscure thing like hey that. i just want to say before we talk about god's love that that volume three going through the pipeline very exciting i i know that's gonna change my life for quite a while because as soon as a new nce comes out i spend quite a long time just having that be my go-to read so i can't wait for three that's gonna be awesome oh, oh I that's know. cool fresh that's really nce great. to ingest i'm so excited so this first passage, um, when I read this, I was just struck with the thought that uh, we all struggle with frailties, with being mere human beings and and all that, and we may resent it or just, you know, why is life so difficult and that sort of thing. Um, this passage just blew my mind. Swedenborg writes, neither divinity itself nor divine humanity could be tested, as anyone can see, simply from the fact that the divine cannot be approached even by angels, much less by the spirits who inflict trials, least of all by the hells. This shows why the Lord came into the world and took on a truly human condition with all its frailties. When he did so, you see, his human side could be tested. Through those trials, he could subdue the hells and reduce absolutely everything to obedience and to order. He could also save the human race, which had put so much distance between itself and the highest level of divinity. So it's almost like the thing you dislike the most the Lord says, oh, that would be useful. I want to get me some of that. 
<laughs> Chelsea, I, th- I already have a superpower. Frailty. There you go. Frailty. Frailty. <laughs> That's right. Frailty, Much man. coveted. That was God's superpower, so what can we say? Well, yeah. I, no, it, it's, the point is well taken. The fact that the divine had to take steps to, to reach this condition because this is the only place something really useful could be done from, it is, it is like mm. a bit of hallowed ground. It really gets you thinking, doesn't it? Yeah, and I'm interested too in the in the nuance in there about how I sort of felt sad when it's like angels can't even approach the divine, but then toward the end of the passage it says uh, humanity removed itself from the highest level of the divine. It just sort of indicates to me that God doesn't want to be that far away from us. It's just we've got these, you know... Uh, frailties or whatever that get in the way, but then God can even use that to all of our advantage. I think it's really amazing to think of that. When I was editing it, it just moved me to tears with the thought of, um, you know, the special thing that he came here to do was to just suffer in the way that you can only suffer if you're human, Hmm. because he could get all this good done by doing that, which is amazing to me. These two other quotes are quite short, but they also have to do with the Lord's love. Um, This is in a chapter, Genesis 23, where Abraham is, his wife Sarah has died, and he's negotiating with these strangers for a tomb. You know, can he buy a piece of land or would they give it to him and Hmm. so he can bury Sarah? And uh, there's this simple phrase, and Swedenborg doesn't say much about it, but this is the whole thing from beginning to end. Abraham rose and bowed down symbolizes the Lord's joy because of being kindly received. And Swedenborg explains that the context is that these, these, so these strangers uh, were very gracious to Abraham, and Abraham represents the Lord in this story. And so things weren't working out with the sort of core religion of that time, and so things were moving on to a new group. And when this new group kindly received the Lord, he had so much joy. You know, I think of the Lord being Mm. omnipotent, all-powerful, which is true, but it's something so touching as if he doesn't expect us to feel that way and just this this joy at being kindly received and hmm. Swedenborg hardly says anything about it he just mentions this a couple of times and moves right on with the story but it really got me i i feel that that clicks into place for me with an experience that i've had when i observe people re- favorably receiving uh the message in Swedenborg's works because I, I I was talking about being raised in a Swedenborgian world, and I know that both of you were as well. So we, we've been around the ideas, uh, but also been aware that there's only a few of us who are interested in this great stuff, especially during the beginning of the, the time where we've been lucky enough to, to be introducing a lot of people to the ideas. There was mm-hmm. a very distinct feeling that I would get when somebody who was a stranger to Swedenborg like saw the Lord in it, saw it mm. as something that was really valuable and true. And I now I'm suddenly wondering, like, what if you know, we all of our feelings come from God? What if that, that feeling we get 
when mm-hmm. we observe somebody like joyfully embracing that what we believe are these truths, if that's a little bit of that feeling, like oh, there's this that to see them receiving the Lord as the Lord has a certain excitement or joy with it. Yes. I love that thought because it's um, I, it is a, both a joy and a bit of a surprise, like. Wow, that's awesome, you know, kind of feeling and and uh I I wonder, yeah, because we we are blessed to have that feeling a lot around here. <laughs> yes. The third passage I wanted to talk about was um uh a passage where in the Bible it says that uh it, it's all about the near sacrifice of Isaac Abraham. It was asked to Mm-hmm. sacrifice his son in the last minute was like not really um and Swedenborg has a great explanation I can't go into about what all that means uh stay tuned for secret seven volume four yeah, but, there we go. <laughs> uh there's some passage in there that that Abram will be blessed and Abraham represents the Lord as he did in the last story we were talking about and then Swedenborg explains and um uh, he, he says this, the Lord himself could not be blessed because he is blessing itself. Mm-hmm. He can be described as blessed, however, when large numbers of people are being saved, a thing he loves to see. <laughs> wow. Now, that's pretty cool. And <laughs> it's also interesting because some people like to say, well, it's not really about numbers. It's about the quality of each heart and, and that sort of thing. But that passage sounds pretty numbery to me. <laughs> you know, what large numbers of people are being saved, a thing he loves to see. Uh, that's what's a blessing to the person who is blessing itself. Wow. wow. So bless, bless the Lord, O my soul, that famous line in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot about blessing the Lord. So is that really talking about doing the work of, of getting yourself saved, uh, you know, and that's how you bless the Lord. So, you know, I, I feel like there's, yes. I, I, I feel like there's a ton of Psalms and things. With, Come on, nations, bless the Lord. Okay. Yes. I get that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Frequent refrain. That's right. So yes. it's, we can, so how do you bless the Lord? Well, Lord, you can't, the only one way you can do it. And that's, um, you know, choose life and, 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 you know, let him lead you into heaven. Yeah, it's mm. amazing to think about all the different ways that, you know, to imagine what a grand scale it's talking about, large numbers of people being saved, but just that, that uh, waking up to heaven and, and supporting each other in that and helping each other along the journey. It's, it's exciting to think about all the ways that you know that that's happening in the world and so how blessed the Lord must be feeling all the time, even though there's so much more we can be doing. Like, I feel so energized just hearing that. It lets him be a blessing, doesn't it? Like uh, on a larger scale. Yeah, right. Because of that human response piece. You know, the more people are are um, getting on board in whatever form, you know, opening their hearts to it, uh, the more he can be a blessing. And so... That's a good that. day. I love that. That's that's bringing to life the word blessing in a cool way that it's been sort of flat in the past, you know, but just that idea of let there be a blessing, you know, may you be blessed, that whole idea. I'm going to be thinking about that differently. 
Cool. Oh, thanks so much, Jonathan. This has been great being sort of these uh, fireside chats, <laughs> getting to be tucked in here in your office with Curtis this time. Yeah. Warming well, this, ourselves this by the light. Totally uh, <laughs> beat the hype. I mean, this was better than I could have expected getting invited here. <laughs> Such a joy for me, I got to say. Great. Oh, well, all right. I think it's that time for us to go see where Swedenborg was this week in history. You ready? Ready. Ready. All right, Curtis and Jonathan, we are traveling back in time and this week to September 8th, 1766. And I can see it now. There you go. In your mind's eye, we are in Stockholm, Sweden, and it's a warm, breezy day in September, and we are by a pier where there are large boats arriving and docking, and Swedenborg is coming off of this ship, or he's arriving in Stockholm, coming in from London, but on this record-breaking trip where it had only been one week ago, eight days, that he had been in London. So he got all the way from London to Stockholm in eight days when normally in other years, because he's often traveling this time of year, it's taking him a month, you know, because the the weather can be so variable and tides and, and such things. And Wow, eight days to a month? It makes me think of yeah. when I'm looking at my GPS and it adds 10 minutes and I'm like, oh, man. I know. I really was wondering, trying to imagine for myself, Swedenborg goes on this trip, sometimes yearly, but sometimes not every year. And it's like, I mean, I, I just went on a road trip with my family where we were ultimately in the car, I think, for 48 hours. Like we went to a lot of places, so it was broken up. But if you tallied up all the time we were in our car, it was about two days. But can you imagine Swedenborg just being on a boat for eight days or being on a boat for three weeks? And is he doing a lot of writing? Does he feel like that's where he gets a lot of time to think in that one month in his life? It was the time when the spirits, his connection kind of went radio silent for a while. So, you know, it probably just sort of feels like in the same way when you're traveling, you sort of feel in limbo, you know, sort of uprooted from where you were and not quite settled where you're going. So life can sort of feel up in the air when you're in those sorts of states. So I wonder what that was like for Swedenborg to just be on that boat for day after day. And apparently he had predicted to somebody that it was only going to take eight days. When they were loading the ship, if I have the story right, somebody said, are you sure you got enough, you know, supplies? Oh. The sort of dumb thing that somebody always says when you're loading your <laughs> ship, you know? <laughs> what, what do you mean dumb? It's me going after my kids. Did you pack enough underwear? <laughs> you sure you got enough there, buddy? Did you pack socks? <laughs> And Swedenborg says, no, we'll be there in, in eight days. We're going to be fine. And nobody can believe it because uh, if I have my geography right, just speaking in rough terms, in order to sail from London to Stockholm, you have to go east into the English Channel, then north, and then east around Denmark, and then south, and mm. then east 
and then north and then west to get into Stockholm. And Stockholm is this archipelago of many islands and it's tricky to, to get in there. So the reason it would take a month is that, you know, when he would dine with friends when he was in in uh, Gothenburg, it was because they were waiting for that that tide or sometimes you'd have to hang out for five days to get the tide and the wind right because sometimes you get the right wind but the tide is wrong. And yes. um, this time there was literally a perfect storm. There was There was a storm that blew oh. over and blew north and then east and then south and then east again and then north again and then west <laughs> and kind of shoved the ship. They never weighed anchor once. It just kind of pushed the Whoa. boat right <laughs> into Stockholm in eight days and the captain's mind was absolutely blown. I am Super amazed. Power. Super power. There Swedenborg. you go. Sure, he talked about stuff, but he could also control the weather. Yes, an airbender <laughs> or waterbender, as my kids might say. Uh, I think that's from Avatar or something. Anyway, so... <laughs> Mom, that's not what it's from. <laughs> so um, they're getting into this episode a lot. So I'm amazed. Do you have any idea where is that? I didn't know that. Where is that record or who wrote that down? There was an anecdote about, um, I think someone was there and boarded as he was leaving. One of his friends in England wow. saw him off and was talking to the um, captain and recorded this anecdote about it. Oh, that's I think amazing. it's in Sigstech's uh, Swedenborg epic. Oh, yes. Oh, that's awesome. Here he is. He's gotten magically whisked away to Stockholm from London, and he had been in... England since April of that year. So 1766, he had gone, we know from a letter that Swedenborg wrote to his good friend, Gabriel Beyer, that he was heading to England back in April because he this work was done. Always, if Swedenborg's traveling, the next question is, what is he publishing? Because he writes to Beyer saying he's traveling to England because he had finished writing Apocalypse Revealed, which is, uh, or in the New Century Edition translation title, Revelation Unveiled. And this work we've touched on in the past because it's the one where it's his second bat at the book of Revelation. He had written uh, a previous work that was unpublished called Apocalypse Explained, or yes, that's right. What is the revelation explained? I guess is that revelation the NCE? explained? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in that case, he he was writing that between the years 1758 to 1763. Jonathan could be more specific, probably about this, but his he attempts to do this exegesis of the Book of Revelation, and it just gets enormous. And then his sort of plans change. And there's we've covered this in a few other um, episodes on the podcast. And then things go a different way, but then it's this it's this work where in his work Married Love, there's this number uh, 522 where Swedenborg describes hearing this angel that says, at that time, 
I then heard a voice from heaven, this is Swedenborg writing, saying, Go into your chamber, shut the door, and attend to the work begun on the apocalypse, and pursue this in two years to a conclusion. So, doing some dating, he had that experience back in 1764, where after he had sort of put down his work on Revelation, did other things, he picks it up again and finally finishes this work on the book of Revelation. And instead of being many volumes, it's ultimately only two volumes. Is that true in the in the Latin? It's actually only one in the Latin, and then it's oh. often been represented as two in English because Latin doesn't even have the word word the or of. <laughs> so right. you, you add a lot yeah. to you add some water to the powder of Latin and it turns into English and so it gets a little larger. Yeah, so instead of being this multi-volume work, it's now just a single volume, and he has he goes to England to publish it, and then and then this week in history, he's arriving back with the volumes in hand. I would assume coming back home to Stockholm. Any input from you, Jonathan, about my very fast overview of the shift from A E to? A-R, Apocalypse Explained to Apocalypse Revealed. I'll just add this. There's a lot to say about that. But the um, he didn't just tweak Apocalypse Explained. He could have kind of done an edit. Paper was very expensive. There was raging inflation going on. He could have just edited it. But he really started again on page one. He he kept mm. looking at what he'd already done, but uh, even some of his explanations of the inner meanings are different or have a different emphasis in the work. Um, uh, so amazing to do something so huge and then, uh, you know, w- well over a thousand pages long in uh, two manuscript versions because he'd write a rough copy and then a finished draft. So thousands of pages of manuscript mm. and then to just, okay, I'll sit down, the angel said, you know, so I'll start over again and do it do it more, um, you know, succinctly this time. Yeah, and just get it out. And then he does finally finish it in two years and, and publishes it in 1766. So what do you have to say about the work Revelation Unveiled? How is it, what is unique about it, uh, on its own terms, even also with how it compared with uh, his earlier draft. Well, it's so interesting, that account that you mentioned of an angel telling him. I, I've i had that quote on my wall for years in Latin because it's like, that's what I need to do for the New Century edition. Often yes. Get in there, shut the door, <laughs> you know, concentrate <clears throat> and keep at it until it's done. Um. Revelation Unveiled, I think, was probably the hardest thing Swedenborg ever did in his life. Mm. And I think part of what was difficult about it was that I think in Apocalypse Explained or Revelation Explained, you see the way that he would like to do it more left to his own devices. I don't mean that he didn't have inspiration or whatever, but... But that's the way he would like to do it. And in there, if you've seen that work, 
He'll take a verse. Okay, it's got some image of it, like the key that opens the bottomless pit. Okay, let's talk about that key. And then he'll go find all these other passages about keys, and then he'll explain each of those passages. Mm -hmm. All those other passages. See, key means this, key means that, key means that. And so uh, preachers and minister types uh, love Revelation Explained, Apocalypse Explained, because it's often a place where you can find a, a text that you want to use for a sermon, you, you can find it being explained in there because Swedenborg goes, you know, at such length. Um, uh, when he had to retool and, and do it more efficiently and his money is only worth, you know, a third of what it used to be, um, he took those same quotes often. He would take that same passage about the key. He would take those same quotes about the key but he wouldn't talk about any of them. Mm. He would just say, a key means this, as you can see from the following, bang, 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 bang. And um, that nature of that work has made it frustrating to translate. I've talked to two people who have translated the work, which is pretty amazing. I mean, it's not like it happens every day. Yeah. Uh, and they both complained about how hard it was to translate because you get all these biblical quotations without context. And mm. um, uh, the the impression that I got, when Swedenborg was much younger, he wrote an article about counting round shot, by which he means like cannonballs. And it was an efficient way of packing a whole bunch of cannonballs into like a shed or something. <laughs> what mathematically is the most efficient way to pack the most ammunition into the smallest possible space. And he wrote an article about that. Well, <laughs> Revelation Unveiled seems like that to me. He has compressed this spiritual ammunition into this mm. tight space. So if you are in a debate with, a, you know, let's say a well-read fundamentalist Christian, you know, with a whole quiver full of proof passages or something, that work is awesome because it'll give you every passage you need. Bang, bang, bang. There they all are. Mm. Uh, not much explanation, not, not much frill, uh, just the passages you need. But so I think it was the most difficult work Swedenborg ever wrote. It has the interesting distinction as well of being the only work to which every subsequent published theological work of Swedenborg's points back and mm. the only work that points back to every single published theological work that came before it. Mm. No others do that. Most There's always cross-references, but there's usually gaps. You know, it mentions mm. this work, but not that work. But it's like Grand Central Station. Or, you know, it's really central to what Swedenborg wrote. So it's ironic that because of the nature of the work, uh, I would go out on a limb and say that amongst uh, most Swedenborgians, I know there are exceptions, it's not their favorite book of Swedenborg's. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of hard to love uh, because unless you're really deep in a battle against faith alone or something uh, that has interesting spiritual experiences at the end of every chapter, but, they, but a lot of it is like he said so little and I think that that took tremendous discipline for him wow. not to say. He was dying to explain. 
Uh, but he just had to leave it alone or the book would never get done. He, he, he knew it would never get done. And he did it. He succeeded. And he got it out on the angel's time frame. Oh, that's amazing. And I just, it's so true that I've, I myself will admit I have felt like, oh, apocalypse revealed. Like, I can't wait. I want to read this. And then it's just like running into a brick wall. <laughs> it's just so, so dense. And it's not, it doesn't seem written for someone like me to just enjoy. You know, you have to want to dig into that and you have to be ready to do some sort of your own heavy lifting or something like uh, his explanations of the internal sense of the commandments uh, the 10 commandments in apocalypse mm-hmm. revealed are so small and dry compared to his explanation of them in apocalypse explained i remember doing research for an early video for off the left eye where we wanted to get into the, some of the internal sense of the commandments. And I feel like the AR stuff, you barely learn that much more than it's just right there in the commandment itself. But the AE had all these nuanced psychological takes on it that, that feel felt very modern and everything. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit less of an artist's dream. Yeah. yeah. It goes on for, um, it goes on for days uh, if I may make a rather silly analogy, when I was thinking about this one time and trying to figure out what was going on, it would be as if you walked up to somebody in uniform, let's say, on the street, and you said, where's the nearest uh, ATM? And uh, they said, uh, at the corner. And that's all they said. And you're looking right. You sort of try to see the corner, and then you have to figure it out, and you go over there, and uh, then you see them again, and you ask them, "So, where's the donut place?" And and they say, "To the left." And then you see them another time where they're not in uniform, and then you say, "Where's the library?" And they say, "Oh, the library is such a cool building. It's down to the left." And then you go across the other side, and then be sure to check out that little park that's there because it's really cute. I often eat yeah. my lunch out there, and. Um, the difference between uh, Apocalypse Revealed is like that three-word answer. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like he was under strictures or something, and in Apocalypse Explained, he's not. And I remember one story where he, in Apocalypse Explained, where he will not only, like, I'll give you an exact example. The There's a scripture about if the eye is sound, then the whole body is sound, but if the eye is dark, how great is that darkness? That kind of thing from Luke. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Apocalypse Revealed, all he says about it is the eye means the intellect. Period. <laughs> that, that's it. When you read it in Apocalypse Explained, he not only tells you that the eye means this, and this is what this part, and the body means this, and this is what the darkness is, but if the passage had mentioned the left and right eyes, they would have meant this and that. Huh. <laughs> it's a totally different, it's very interesting that he was under tight restrictions, I think, in that book. Like, just got to get the job done, like one of the, um, you know, the Queen's Guards in the Busbies or something in, in the Buckingham Palace. You know, that you can't talk to the people, you just got to do your job. Yes. <laughs> And so he's coming back from England. He has that published. And do you have any sense of where 
it was it was it enough for it to just exist you know or did he expect to sort of is it one of the ones that he promoted himself a lot or I, it's one of those ones I don't know the history around as much he sent out cover letters with it and a few of those just a couple of those cover letters survive and one thing that's extremely interesting to me is that he tells people uh, he used this special typographical ornamentation at the end of the chapter when he shifted into accounts of his spiritual experiences. He okay. used these floral asterisks to differentiate the different parts of the text. And in these cover letters that survive, he tells people, read that stuff first. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's almost as if he knew this work is going to be tough to get into. But if you read those stories, they might, um, you know, excite your excite your interest. Uh, so he did, and he sent it especially to clergy. It was obviously a work designed for the clergy because it's so heavily biblical. You really mm -hmm. sort of had to know your Bible to to get the most out of it. Oh, so interesting. So it's it's. It's one of those ones where you have to, you're not, you're, you can't be passive and read Apocalypse Revealed. You have to be ready to engage and, and sort of do some heavy lifting as you read through it. That's, that's amazing. It seems like there's a lot of potential there that, uh, and it makes me excited about our ongoing series on the YouTube channel where we're exploring chapter by chapter the book of Revelation. And I know that Karin Childs does amazing work digging into both Apocalypse Revealed and Apocalypse Explained to bring together the constellation of, of the inner meaning that's, you know, just brimming at the surface there. But you kind of need, you need to get in there and, and bring it out to shine. One way that I've used the book is to... Um... I keep it by me while I'm reading the Bible because almost all the imagery that ever occurs from one end of the Bible to the other occurs in the book of Revelation. There's very little that isn't in there. And so if I can use a concordance or or an app and find out where in the book of Revelation that is, then I can look oh. it up and I can use it as almost a dictionary of correspondences. What an interesting tool. I've never thought of that before. That's awesome. So cool. Well, amazing. And thanks, Curtis and Jonathan, for accompanying me and going on this journey together back to 1766. It was fun. It was a quick sale. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I was going to say, just like Swedenborg needed to travel to get his works published or spend time on a ship getting from point A to point B. That's like us taking this break in our posting and preparation for our next season of content. But hopefully the winds will be favorable to us and the time will just fly by. So I look forward to next time. hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to the podcast to never miss when a new episode comes out. And thank you so much for listening. If you've benefited from our content or want to help support its quality and reach, consider supporting us with a donation. Go to offthelefteye.com slash donate and learn about the variety of ways that you can help. 
I'm Chelsea Odner, and I look forward to the next time we're together inside Off the Left Eye. Mm-hmm.